Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture is Matthew 9, verses 1 through 13. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to man. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax uh, tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Thanks, man. All right. Okay, everybody good? Woo! There it is. Woo! Okay. Um, I know what you're thinking. Okay, so there's, there's, there's two stories back-to-back here that we're doing. I'm not going to separate them because they're meant to go together, and when they go together, um, they actually, in the first century, uh, were, were pretty scandalous. Uh, I know you likely saw none of it, unless you're familiar with with sort of um, a lot of the context of, of this idea of tax collectors, of table fellowship, of all that. So we're going to get into all that this morning. Um, and so in the, in the first century, this was a very scandalous text, and it was offensive to Jewish people. I'm going to take it and make it, like, tell you how it's scandalous, and I'm likely going to make it offensive to you. Just want you to know that. Okay. It's a difficult it's a difficult passage, um, and I'm going to try to do my best to explain it in a way that you'll grasp it and be rightly offended, okay? So, all right. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off uh, with a word of prayer, ask for wisdom, um, ask for understanding and knowledge, shall we? Let's pray. Father, there are many things that distract us throughout our week. There are many things which we are worried about. Uh, there are things, people in this room who are not at peace, who are facing difficult, heavy heavy, hard things. I ask that right now, we, while we affirm that all of that is, is very, very important, I ask that right now we would be able to push it aside, that we would be here, that we would see um, the grander scheme in life of what it means um, to declare Jesus as Lord, what it can do for our lives, what it can do for our hearts towards people, what it can do for our world. Um, help us to see things in a whole new way. Um, help us to all stand uh, before you with hearts and minds that are open. Um, let us see ourselves not just um, in the righteous, but let us see ourselves in the Pharisees. Let us see ourselves in the sinners in the story. Let us see ourselves as tax collectors and, and those whom we need to rightfully relate with. Help all of this to make sense. Speak through me. In your name, amen. Okay, here we go. Okay, uh, Jesus stepped into a boat and crossed over 
and came to his own town. If you were here last week, uh, you know what's going on. He went somewhere else to do some missionary work. It didn't go as planned, um, or did it? Uh, and then he, uh, he came back here to where we are. Um, he comes back to, uh, hold on, I'll just keep reading and then I'll, and then I'll uh, put up a visual for you. Came back to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. So um, he's back in Capernaum. We've been talking about this town and what it is. He's staying at the home of Peter. Um, this is likely... Um, uh, where this happens in Peter's house. Um, it's the same place where, okay, so Mark tells the same story and so does Luke. Mark's version of the story has uh, four men bringing Jesus, uh, br- uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, let me start over. Uh, Mark's telling of it has Jesus in a house, Peter's house, surrounded by people whom he is teaching. Um, these difficult things that are hard to learn. There's spiritual leaders in that house. There's peasants in the house. Um, I hold out faith that there may have been a Roman, a certain Roman centurion and servants in the house, um, that maybe the Jewish people accepted them, but who knows? Um, and then suddenly someone pulls the roof open. Someone, someone just rips it open and then drops down this paralyzed guy. And they look up and it's four friends dropping their paralyzed friend down in the middle of the room. Okay. That is the same story. Jesus, uh, Matthew doesn't mention the house or the friends or any of the, any of the stuff. He's, he's like a no nonsense guy. We're going to tell the story. We're going to tell what happened. So, that's what he does. Um, okay, so this paralyzed man ends up in front of Jesus. Over and over and over, this kind of thing keeps happening. There's a, a man with leprosy who ends up just at Jesus' feet right there. There's a, a Roman centurion with a, uh, a dying servant. There's, a, um, there's some demoniacs, and now there's a paralyzed man. These people keep ending up right in front of Jesus, and he has to deal with them. What does he do? How does he handle this? Um, he does this one differently. The first thing he says... Uh, he looks at the paralyzed man and he says, take heart, son. Um, uh, there's a, an African-American theologian. Um, uh, his name is Hoyt. Uh, he's written, he, wrote, he actually opens up this passage and writes a lot about it. Talks about how um, this idea, this word he uses is, is this word, atharsia, which is, which is um, it's, it's, like don't, it's like don't be afraid to be, who you, to be who you are in front of the person that you're in front of. Don't be ashamed. Um, And it's sort of like Jesus shunning this man's shame that he had. Okay, whatever trepidatiousness this man had by standing in front of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, this traveling, preaching healer. He says, first off, don't be afraid. And this is contrast to the last few stories where people are terrified, terrified in the storm, terrified of Jesus being there, um, calling for mercy, all of it. This man is different. He says nothing. He's, He's there in front of Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and says, first off, take take heart. Okay. Be uplifted in your spirit. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. This is a really interesting thing to say uh, for several reasons. First off, the man was sick and Jesus forgave his sins. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, Second, he didn't ask for forgiveness. He did not pray the sinner's prayer. He did not throw a stick in the fire at summer camp. He did nothing that would indicate that he desired forgiveness of his sins. He was just there, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Don't be ashamed. Don't feel guilt. Take heart. Be joyful. You're forgiven. The man did nothing. Didn't ask. Didn't repent. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now, um, 
A lot of scholars, when you study this passage, um, they link all of this to the idea that, okay, so Jesus didn't tell anyone else that he was healing, that their sins are forgiven. No one else. The rest of them, he just kind of healed. One of them he pronounced clean, um, but the rest he just kind of healed and reconciled to people. The thing that was separating this man from people um, was something different. It was his shame. He had apparently done something. He was apparently some sort of known sinner. All the language is pointing to that. That he couldn't even get in the house to where Jesus was teaching. They wouldn't let him in. And so they break the roof open and they drop the man down right in front of Jesus. And Jesus says, first off, take heart, be joyful. Don't be ashamed. Your sins are forgiven. And that somehow was enough. Somehow this man needed this. That was enough to bring him the healing that he needs. Now, if you've ever studied the effects, I, I mean, if you're a clinician, you have. Um, uh, the rest of you, if you haven't, like if you've ever studied the effects of shame on the human body, they're really bad. Um, it can cause, so to start off with the little things, nausea, chest tightness, uh, lethargy, flushing skin, adrenaline deficit, it starts getting more serious. It causes cortisol release, um, starts messing with your weight, your body fat, your heart, um, digestive issues, the deterioration of the immune system, inflammation and infection are higher um, in people who, care, who carry shame, who are ashamed of whatever the things they've done, who they are, um, things that have been done to them, rape victims, um, people who have been abused, they carry shame. This stuff is working inside of them. Inflammation, infection is higher in them. Um, the effects of shame are felt in the pancreas, the duodenum. Um, these are the parts of your body that are, are crucial for digestion and expulsion of, like, of foods and toxins. And it, it really wreaks havoc in your body. Um, when shame is felt in the body, what happens is your organs, they want to expel. They want to work really hard to get rid of what feels disgusting. Your body's like, I don't feel right. I want, to, I want to expel everything. And they're working really, really hard, and it does a lot of damage to you, to yourself. Um, to, and, and so your body's trying to eject the root of the shame, and you're holding on to the emotion of the shame in your body, and it can cause further damage to your internal organs, your solar plexus. It's also the area that it's carried in. Um, a lot of studies have shown people can literally die from the effects in the body due to shame. Now, some of you were raised in certain Christian traditions where shame was the currency we were trading. Where you were told, um, really, God's story starts with shame on you. Shame, shame, shame. And you're not worthy. And that is the story we tell each other. That was never Jesus' story. That is the story of the Pharisees that they tell other people to get the eyes off of themselves. Jesus sees a man full of shame in front of him and he looks at the man and he says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, no one asked. And he's like, I don't care. He needs to hear this. I don't hold anything against him. I love him. The church should be the place that instead of piling on the shame, the world's piling on enough shame as it is, okay? The church is the place where people gather and we don't pile the shame on. We actually release you from that. They walk in and their, their shoulders are a little droopy. Their head hangs a little low. And you look at them and you say, hey, bye. Hi. first off, I want you to know, your sins are forgiven in the name of Jesus. And my name is Tommy. Good to meet you. <laughs> Welcome to church. That is the posture of Jesus that should be the posture 
of the body of Jesus. That is how we gather. Now, okay, there's more to it than that. There is, in this context, Jesus is in this room and he's teaching these people. There are scribes and Pharisees. There's religious elite, teachers of the law. And Jesus um, knows that they're there. And there was a particular, in the first century, this particular time, there was a particular um, belief that was prominent among all religious leaders. And the belief was that your illnesses are caused by the sins that you have committed. Now, Maybe some of you even grew up in that kind of church that told you that. The illnesses in your life, all the bad things in your life are due to your sin. So if you're, if you're sick, if you're going through something hard, it's, you need to start confessing the things that you've done wrong. I've heard this. I've met people like this. That is, that is a painful way to live. It's not even true. Um, it's, it's a lie. The, the, the apostles who followed Christ, many of them lived incredibly blameless lives, faithful lives, and, and they got terribly sick and they were martyred and terrible things happened to them all the way to the day they died. Um, it has nothing to do with their sin. Now, sin, your sin can bring about terrible things in your life. There's no doubt about that. And other people's sin in your vicinity can bring about terrible things on your life. Anyone who's been a victim of a crime knows that. But there is not this one-to-one correlation where things are going bad for you. You better, you better start repenting so that you could turn things around. Um, if that's not a heavy burden, I don't know what is. This is everything bad in your life is your fault. Okay. Um, it's like Christian Darwinism or something like it's, it's like, no, the survival of like the ones who are the most righteous. Right. So, um, now, I mean, there's Christian Darwinism, by the way, so I should not. Anyways, we don't, don't email me. Let's not do that. <laughs> We're talking about this. Okay. Um, okay. So there was this Palestinian view that this man was sick because of things that he had done wrong. And if he would just offer the right sacrifices, um, then he would be healed. Okay. Know that that is there. Um, and so the scribes are watching and Jesus is there with them. And here we go. Jesus looks at the scribes. Um, and he said, at some of this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, well, this fellow is blaspheming. This fella is blaspheming. And they're a gasp. Right? That this fella is blaspheming. Now, um, there is, okay, where are we? I'm going to make sure I do this right. Now, um, up to this point, nobody has had a problem with any of the, thing, any of the things that Jesus has said. There's, there's been no pushback. This is the beginning of the end. This is where the case against Jesus begins to be like, uh, we're going to build this case. This is the case they're starting to build to kill this man, to kill Jesus of Nazareth. And it starts with one thing, something that doesn't seem like a big deal, the forgiveness of sins. This was a huge deal to them because there was a way that sins are forgiven. And what they just witnessed flew in the face of all of that. This is not the way to them. What just happened? I saw lights. I had literally no idea what happened. <laughs> Just going to keep moving. Okay. I wish I was in on the joke. Okay. <laughs> I love jokes. Okay. At this point, somebody teaches, okay. So they're, they're saying, this is not the way sins, sins are forgiven. All right. At all. This is not it. There is a way. This is not it. You can't just walk up to people and forgive them of their sins. There are sacrifices that need to be made. Um, there are, there are all kinds of things that need to be done. Now, Jesus looks at them 
And he says something fascinating. First off, he says, it says, knowing their thoughts. Uh-oh, knowing their thoughts. Okay, knowing their thoughts. There's not even conversation. Jesus says, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. Um, okay, so Jesus looks at these guys and he says, look, I could just heal the guy. I could just do that. I could, I could heal the guy. Now, um, according to your own theology, though, he is sick because his, his sins. So if I healed him, obviously that means his sins have been forgiven. Um, you just don't like it that I'm forgiving them and that he's not working through your system. And then he literally, there's like, uh, there's like an insult here and he's challenging them to a gentleman's duel when he says this. He says, but I want you to know that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said, I could have just said, you're healed. And there may have been some mystery of it. Oh, he must have confessed his sins. I mean, I could have done that. But I wanted you to see me forgive this guy out of nowhere. Like a, a surprise ambush forgiveness. <laughs> because I wanted to see the look on your stupid faces. No, it's, <laughs> when I forgave this guy's sin. Because you know that this is not right. Now, so let's talk about the system, shall we? The system in which these guys worked. Uh, it starts... Way back in the Torah, the law, the law of Israel. Now, um, the Torah had lots and lots and lots and lots of rules and laws. There was ways that God wanted his people to be. And so there was laws that if you break these laws, um, you're outside of God's people. And so what they did was, uh, the, the rabbis described it as they built a fence around the law. So there's these laws you need to obey. There's 10 of them here. And then they built a fence around the Ten Commandments by putting th thousands and thousands of commandments that you follow to keep, make sure you never get near the Ten Commandments. All right? So there's all these things that you did. And so the Torah is filled with, with ways, uh, with commands to keep you from sinning. Also, the Torah is filled with, with um, instructions for what to do in case you break one of those laws. So not only are the laws laid out there, there are sacrifices laid out. So if, if you break one of these laws, we can fix it. You just got, here's a prescription. Like if, if you lusted, you take a couple doves and you fit those. And there's all kinds of different, like maybe a goat sin or there's like a, like a lamb sin or like a cow sin, right? Um, some of it's just like, a, it's like a wheat sin. All right, not, not so bad. Um, and there's all these things, depending on what you did, there's all these prescriptions for the sins that you committed, the things that you would do to make it right with God. Over time, they developed the idea, um, and they got a little bit of wealth. They got land, things started doing better. And a guy looks out at his field, and he's like, I've got, uh, I've got a lot of extra pigeons around here. I could steal some stuff. And I could get away with that because I've got extra, I've got three pigeons. I could steal three things and just pay it out, pay it off and I'll be good. Um, I've got, you know, someone dies, you inherit a cow. Hey, Mardi Gras. <laughs> I'm going to Mardi Gras. I've got a cow. You got a cow? Lucky. Yeah. See you in three weeks. Spring break to Tampa. Um, and this is how they would live. 
And so what happens is there's these temples and there's these altars and the people were lining up a hundred people long with their sacrifices. All right. It's like Sunday morning after Gasparilla, right? Everyone's like, everyone's at church. Look at everyone's lined up and they've got goats and cows and chickens and like they've got all their stuff. And the prophets come out and they look at these people and they're like, what are you doing? And okay, so we have some of the writings. Okay, we have Isaiah. Look at verse 11. Um, Isaiah 1, 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and of lambs and of goats. Uh, when you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Go down to verse 14, like halfway through. Um, uh, your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. And even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. La, la, la. Okay? He's not. This is not what God intended. Break the law, pay the fine. Break the law, pay the fine. That's not, that's not what he intended. He intended for your hearts to be loving and just, to welcome the immigrants, um, to, to welcome people to become God's people, um, to join with people to make peace with your enemies, to bless the nations around you. And instead of doing that, you're stacking up a bunch of sins and paying the debt and trying to have as much fun as you can. That is not what God intended. And what happens is when they go into exile twice and their land is desecrated and destroyed, the prophets say, it's because you were living like this. This is the reason. You sinned, you did terrible things, and you wouldn't make it right in your hearts. You were just making it right with your hands. So that is where this comes from at the very beginning. Now, that's there. Let's fast forward back to the future here. Okay? Now, we're in the first century. In the first century, there was this conversation about whose fault it was that the Jewish land was desecrated now. Because they're in the first century, the Romans have taken over, their, their land is being occupied, the Romans are in the city of Capernaum, defiling the whole city, just by being, them being there, it's, it's unclean. And so there's all this conversation about whose fault is it? Who didn't offer the sacrifices? Who's the sinner? Whose fault is it that things are the way they are? By the way, do we not have these conversations every day with each other? Whose fault is it that things are the way they are? And we point and we're looking for the sinner and we're looking for someone to offer the sacrifice to appease us. And then we will welcome back into fellowship with us. Am I, am I wrong? This is what was happening. And so you have all these Jewish sects in the first century because it had split off. So you have Essenes and, and priests and Sadducees and Pharisees. And then there's the just Jewish people who are trying to figure out who to follow, who's right, whose fault is it? What do we do? How do we get these Romans out of here and have our land back and usher in the kingdom of God? And people had theories about who it was. So the Pharisees blamed the Jewish people. They blamed the Jewish people because they said, you guys are just sinners. You're doing everything wrong. You need to stop sinning. And if you stop sinning, the occupation will end and God will bring in his kingdom and things, God will bless this nation. Okay? So that's who the Pharisees were blaming. The Sadducees and the priests were both blaming the Jewish people as well for different reasons. Um, the Sadducees blamed the people... Um, because they didn't take the temple seriously. They said, you don't respect the work that we, your spiritual leaders, are doing. And if you only would submit to your spiritual leaders and do what we say and take our work seriously, then God would return and, and we would be whole again. Um, 
the priests blamed the Jewish people. They literally were blaming the Jewish people, uh, blaming the Jewish people because they said, your sacrifice, they, they, they quote Malachi. They say, your sacrifices, um, they're inferior. Like you bring a lamb, but like their ears are lopsided. So like God's not happy with you. You've got a nice one there. I know it's the family pet, but put it on the altar, okay? And so there's all, they're demanding a lot. They're like, your sacrifices aren't good enough. Everyone is laying the burden, and Jesus tells this, you're laying such a heavy burden on these people. And they're all saying, follow us, follow us. We'll lead you to, to like this paradise, right? To this utopian society that we're going to build. And then there's the Essenes. They're crazy. They, they blamed everybody. Um, they're like the libertarians. They're out here like, it's no, it's them, it's them, it's them, it's them, it's them. We are out. And they're going out. They bought a homestead in the middle of the desert and they, they dug caves and wrote scrolls and they left them. And that's how we got the Qumran scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? So thanks to these crazy people who were like, we're out. This can't be redeemed. Okay. Now there's blame flying everywhere, everywhere. And then Jesus walks onto the scene and Jesus walks up and they're like, okay, another rabbi. Good. He's, he's like a messianic rabbi. Who's, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it? You tell them it's their fault. And you know what Jesus does? Jesus walks up and he's, he's like, but I'm with them. So you, you think it's my fault. I'm with them. I was born in a manger. When I was born, the angels told the people, um, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not, not them. God with us. God with us down here. And he says, I'm, I'm one of them. So Jesus walks in and he's not demanding sacrifices. He's just saying, you're forgiven. How are you going to forgive their sins? I'm, I'm just going to forgive them. See, me and you, we take for granted the fact that we can forgive people. Like we say, I've forgiven them and it's okay. Well, what did they do to earn your forgiveness? Nothing. I just kind of, I decided that they don't know, they no longer owe me anything. That's what forgiveness is, by the way saying, you don't owe me anything. Um, and I set myself free from their debt. And I said, you're forgiven. And we believe this can be done. The only reason you find it possible to forgive people today is because of the groundbreaking innovation of Jesus who said, oh, I don't require any sacrifices. Everyone required sacrifices. You could not in the ancient world just forgive people. Like Jesus invents this kind of forgiveness where he just says, oh, I don't, I'm not doing anything. No, they're fine. I forgave them. You can't just do that, but I did. But Jesus, we built a temple. What are we going to do with it now? It's here. <laughs> it's big. It's got an altar. I can't just not use this altar, right? Um, so we get to verse nine. As Jesus went on from there. So this is where the second part connects. Okay. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Okay. If you've been here, when we first started studying this, um, this Capernaum place, there was a centurion there, which means there's how many troops there? Someone said 80. I heard it. That's actually right. Everyone says century, 100. Duh. It was 80 in the Roman Empire. So um, 80 troops there. 
They were there because there's a major artery road going right through along the Sea of Galilee, and you can charge taxes. Um, there just happens to be a guy sitting, a young boy, probably around the age 12, 13. His name is Matthew, and he's sitting at the tax collector's booth. That's a Jewish name. His, his other name that they call him by in the other books is Levi. So he's even like named after the Levitical priesthood line. So he's expected to be Jewish and to do Jewish work. And he's partnered with the occupation, the Roman Empire. Not only that, he's getting rich profiting from the oppression of his own people, um, taking part in organized crime and basically murder of his own people by working with the Romans being a tax collector. He would have been banished from all synagogue gatherings, from all temple worship, everything. He would have basically been an outcast in Jewish society. This guy is a top-notch sinner. Bottom of the barrel sinner. Way worse than the paralytic, worse than the leper, worse than any of them. Worse, probably worse than the demoniac because he's one of them. He's a sinner. And Jesus forgives this guy, this paralytic. Your sins are forgiven. Makes everybody mad and says, did you see what I just did? And then he stands up and he walks outside. And while they're looking, he walks up to the tax collector. Follow me. And he calls a tax collector as a rabbi. He calls a tax collector to be his disciple. And the guys were already huffy puffy. Now they're yelling. They're like, what are you doing? And then third offense, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, this is the most scandalous thing of all. And to understand how offensive this is, you have to understand table fellowship in the first century. Table fellowship in the first century was how you associated uh, with your people. When you ate with them, you were declaring, I am they, uh, they have honor, I want their honor. You would eat with people who were honorable. Um, eating itself, the act of eating, was somehow in the first century, like we have no grasp on how important it was to these people. When you share a meal with somebody, it was the statement of, of the year. It was, it was, these are who I eat with and I don't eat with them or them or them or them. These are my people. And when you look at me, you think of them. And so you would eat with high up people. People would go serve at the tables of these, of these rich people um, and they would entertain them, hoping that one day they could have a seat and recline at the table. And Jesus forgives the paralytic who didn't ask and didn't make a sacrifice. He goes to Matthew, the tax collector, the, the terrible sinner, and says, you're with me now. You're my student. And then it says, while he was at Matthew's house, which would probably be considered unclean because he was unclean, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. What he's saying is, these are my people. These terrible, bottom of the barrel. Like this is, in my mind, it's, I have kids, forgive me. It's that scene in Tangled where Rapunzel goes to the bar, the snuggly duckling. He's like, these are my people, right? That's what's happening. And everyone's offended. How dare you not play our game? How dare you? And so Jesus, again, enters the scene, forgiving sinners without sacrifices, accepting tax collectors without repentance and eating with sinners. And while everyone is casting blame for the problems in society on different people, Jesus is finding out who those people are and he's going and eating dinner with them. It's burning the table for them and saying, I'm going to be one of them. Throughout 
human history, especially recent history. I mean, you go back to the 40s in Germany. Who was it that they were blaming for all the societal woes? They were blaming the Jewish people. They were blaming gay people. They were blaming minorities of all types. They were blaming um, the local Russian community and the lo- in towns. They were blaming all them. They were saying, these people are terrible. They are the sinners amongst us. And if they weren't here, we would be good. We'd build this utopia. And so what did they do? They exterminated them. And we look back at them and we say, that's terrible. Um, and it is, but we take part in that every day. Extermination is just the end. It's where it leads. When we stand out and we say, these people are responsible for all the problems in our country. These people, these people, these people. For some, it's, it's immigrants. For others, it's law enforcement. For some, it's minorities. And for others, it's, it's whoever. And we make these lists. And we're sitting here. We're making the list of all the sinners, all the sinners around us, that it's their fault that we are where we are. And Jesus is watching you make your list. And he's got a pen and a paper. And he's writing down all the same names you are. And you're like, what are you writing, Jesus? He says, I'm throwing a dinner party. (laughs) And I'm inviting all these people (laughs) to sit at my table. Because I associate with sinners. That's what I do. And the Pharisees, us, the rest of us, we look at Jesus and we say, first off, that's not how it works. They need to renounce their views first, preferably on Twitter. Um... (laughs) Then they need to do, they need to offer the sacrifices, make all the rounds on TV networks. Um, they need to renounce everything. They need to, they need to be fired, lose their income. Um, all the things that they need to do, we, we demand their sacrifices. Once they pay us their sacrifices, that is how forgiveness is given. And after five to 10 years, we will forgive them again and welcome them back into our community. Jesus says, yeah, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to sit at the table with them. And we're going to have dinner. And I'm going to liken myself to them. I'm going to let them call me Emmanuel. Hey, God is with us. Can you believe that? Sinners, lost, the outcasts, the ones who never, who never, never did the work. And we're upset about them for it. Now, Jesus' methods are wildly different. Jesus, first off, didn't demand obedience first before setting things right. He walked up to them and he said, "Um, you're with me. And he just made things right. That's how peace actually enters into the world, by the way, through peace. That's how it happens. I know that we have all these other things that we like to demand. This is how peace enters into the world. And Jesus is like, no, it's not. You just literally practice peace. This is how we do it. Um, and so the second thing that, that, that is part of Jesus' methods is that he forgave their sins without demanding sacrifice. And actually, farther than that, he said, I'm not going to make you sacrifice. In fact, if there's any sacrifices to be done, I'll, I'll, I'll do them myself. And he did. As we enter into <clears throat> the last couple of weeks before Easter, that's what this is about. Jesus is with sinners. They can't offer the sacrifices. They can't make the religious elite happy. And Jesus says, first off, you're forgiven. Second, any, any penance that needs to be made, I'll pay it myself. They're demanding sacrifice. They'll get sacrifice. And then he teaches his followers how to give mercy 
freely. And this is a big one. Um, In the very next chapter, Jesus is talking about the mercy of God. And he, he, he looks at his disciples and he says, um, he says, freely you have received mercy, freely give mercy. He says, the same, the same way you have received it, that's how you should be giving it to others. You didn't deserve it. This man didn't deserve to have his sins forgiven. Of course not. Us Pharisees know that. This tax collector did not deserve to be a disciple of the holy rabbi. Of course not. As a top-notch Pharisee, I know that. I know he didn't deserve that. Um, And Jesus says, hey, as freely as you have received mercy, that's how you should give mercy to other people. In other words, mercy is not yours to distribute as you see fit. It is not yours. It is the mercy of God. And he has demanded that you give it to everyone whom you are sure you should not be giving mercy to. And he says, as freely as you've received it, why don't you just give it that way? Freely gives God's mercy away. And just honestly do that and just watch what happens. Just maybe test and see that that the Lord is good and right. Try it. And it's funny because mercy, okay, so this is interesting. This this sort of was running through my head this week. When, When us Pharisees and the righteous, we're in church on a Sunday, after St. Patrick's Day, no less. Those of us who are the righteous and the Pharisees, when we receive mercy, what do we call it? Grace. Grace of God was given to me. When sinners, the worst in our eyes, when they receive mercy, what do we call it? Foolishness, coddling sinners, blasphemy. We say, you can't do that. And the guy practicing the mercy on them turns and looks at us and we realize it's Jesus. And he's like, I, I'm doing it. This is what I do. I spread the table. And if you really understand who you are, you'd sit down at this table with me. And then he looks at the, at the Pharisees and he says, but go and learn what this means in verse 13. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He says, I'm not, I'm not desiring sacrifice. I'm not desiring that these people offer these sacrifices. My desire for them is not to like live up to my standards. My desire is to show them mercy. It's the desire, it's the only desire that I have. You demand sacrifice, you'll get your sacrifice. Don't you worry. But it won't be from them. It'll be from me. It's funny because we have this verse we throw around, Romans 3.23, Romans 3, and, and Christians, evangelical Christians, we quote this regularly, um, but we, we don't quote verse 24. By the way, John 3.16 is the exact same way. If you're going to quote John 3.16, quote 17 as well. It's vital to the understanding of 16. Um, anyways, um, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, um, that right there, we've all, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That right there is not some cutesy verse. That is the strongest possible proclamation that we can no longer speak of a division between the righteous and sinners. That is what that verse is. It is a public proclamation that you cannot separate yourself from sinners because you yourself are one of them. We like to make it upwards 
Paul literally is writing to a church that is fighting. He is making this lateral. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then you keep going. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. They're justified. It has nothing to do with you. They're forgiven. It has nothing at all to do with you. Jesus' methods are, are bizarre. And you hear them and you think, well, what about getting serious about sin? You want to get serious about sin? Spread the table for sinners. That's how you get serious about sin. And my case in point that I use to push that first off is Jesus. Second, there's this guy, Matthew, this tax collector, Matthew. Do you know who that was? This chief of sinners that Jesus came and, and called and went to his house and ate with all his friends who were outcasts, by the way. That guy, Matthew, is the one who wrote the book we're studying. It's the same guy. He became a follower of Jesus because Jesus forgave him and said, sit down. Let's share a meal together. I identify with you. I know you don't believe it, but I do. God in the flesh with us, sinners at the table. And this man, Matthew, follows. He grows up from a boy into a man and he follows Jesus and he, and he learns everything. He experiences incredible things. And then he, he becomes, after the ascension, he becomes the pastor of the Matthew community and he ends up being martyred. And while he's a pastor of the Matthew community, the people gather together and hear his story and he writes down his his gospel proclamation of who exactly Jesus was. Who was this man that came to me on the side of the road? A terrible outcast sinner. And he came to my house and he sat at my table and he told me to follow him. That's who Matthew is. This is the guy. And so if you don't think that this works, if you think Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, spreading the table for sinners, whatever that was, like I don't, I've been racking my brain all week to figure out what is our equivalent to table fellowship in the first century. Because if table fellowship in the first century is how you identify with the rich, the powerful, the cool, and the wealthy, what is it today? Whatever that thing is today, in your life, in your community, whatever it is that you do to say, this is my crowd, is it name dropping? Is it like pictures and filters of social media? Whatever it is, driving certain kinds of cars, um, whatever it is, the, you're identifying with a group of people. You have to know that Jesus in picking the group he's going to identify with, is going to pick the lowest possible uh, group at the bottom and say, these are my people. And as his body, he's calling us to do the same, to not raise ourselves above, above them, instead to say, we are with them. We are for them. We are we are their brothers and sisters, their kin, their family. And when we spread the table, they have a seat at it. It's got their name on it. And the, the funny thing is that when Jesus left his disciples for the last time, he gave them one gift, one thing to do to remember Jesus. And he says, do this every time you get together. You know what that thing is? Communion, the table. He puts a table with food on it. And he says, when you come together, they'll be rich, they'll be poor. They'll be all nationalities. They'll be all different viewpoints. All kinds of points of disagreement. And some of you will not want to gather with the people that are there because you think you're righteous and you think they're above them. And so the first thing you're going to do is you're going to sit down at the table and you're going to share a meal together. And, and Paul is regularly writing to the church and saying, you're doing the meal wrong. 
You're separating yourselves from each other. Don't do that. And so every time we come together, we, we, we take the meal, communion. It is the thing that binds us all together. This is what Jesus was doing. That's what communion represents. And not only that, Jesus says, and you know, you know, you know what we're going to eat? Bread and wine. The bread represents my body broken for you. My reputation destroyed for you. Going out of my way. And all the, all the people who, whose favor I should be trying to earn, I'm just, I'm just dashing it all, all those hopes on the rocks for you. And eventually I, they, will, they will break my life, my body. I will die for sinners to sit at the table with them. That's the gospel. So on the table is the body of Christ. And then there's the blood of Christ. It was poured out for you. So you're going to be fed at my expense. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to take communion. Our communion servers go on back, grab the elements and spread around the room. Here's what we're going to do today. We're going to take communion um, not by ourselves. I want everyone to take communion at least with one other person, if not two, three, twelve. I don't really care if a whole group of you gather together. Um, we're going to take communion with somebody else today. You're going to take a piece of bread. You're going to dip it in the wine. And you're going to look at each other. Right now, the introverts are freaking out. <laughs> and you're going to look each other in the eye. You're going to say the body of Christ broken for you. Blood of Christ spilled for you. And you're going to eat it. And you're going to take communion. You're going to share a meal with this person. Because that's how the church functions. Even if you don't know them. Even if you wildly disagree with them. And you know just by looking at them. That's who you should take communion with. <laughs> Obviously. And so we're going to do this. We're going to take communion and it's going to be lousy and it's going to be awkward. It's going to be loud. Welcome to the body of Christ. So come on up and uh, we'll take some time and we'll take communion. I'll close this out in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the gift of your table. Thank you for calling sinners Thank you for calling Pharisees and revealing our sin to us and for inviting us all to sit at the table together and to receive your grace, to take communion, to be reminded that this is how healing enters into the world. Make us whole. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.